you say the best product wins in the market, I think the best product with the best ecosystems win bigger and faster. Welcome to Future Perfect Tech, a webinar and podcast series by Harbor Research. Each month, we'll be having discussions with the leading experts in smart systems and the Internet of Things on innovations in markets, technologies, and ecosystems that are working together to build a better future. I do believe in my strange way I'm sold. Do we have the model? Welcome to Future Perfect Tech. We're here today with Jennifer Vancini a GP or general partner at Mighty Capital. Jennifer has been investing in technology and alternative assets for over 10 years. Prior to Mighty Capital, Jennifer built a family office where her investments achieved a 15 times cash on cash return. Jennifer has also held senior executive roles in corporate and strategic business development, especially in the high growth security and mobile sectors with companies such as Telefonica, Symbian, Nokia, and Certicom which she helped take public. So Jennifer, thanks so much for being with us today. First, perhaps you could just, in your own words, describe what got you to this place that you're at and how did you arrive here on our podcast? I'm definitely looking forward to this conversation. We're, we're going to touch on, I think, several areas that are really near and dear to my heart. So gosh, what got me to where I am? I often get that question from a lot of young professionals who want to be or think they want to be a venture capitalist. So... <laughs> What was your journey to, to become an investor? And on a personal level, what I love about investing, what attracts me, a couple things. I've always liked working in startups or that digital entrepreneurialism area of a large company. I love leading edge technologies. And investing is very much like strategic business development, looking for where there's value to be extracted, understanding the complex relationships. I, I always like the idea of investing, the principle of investing, I was one of those nerdy kids in high school that marched down to open a brokerage account and buy a stock. At the time, I bought an oil stock, which shows you how much has changed. But I didn't go into investing directly. Out of uh, undergrad, I went and worked for Pricewaterhouse. It's a great way to start one's careers with the consulting companies because you learn methodologies, professionalism, how to look at things. And then I went and did my MBA at Sauter, which is part of UBC in Vancouver, and really focused on international business. And then Coming out of that, decided it was time to enter the, the tech sector because it was the mid-90s, it was growing, it was exciting. Um, I always loved computers and where that was going. I moved back to Toronto. I'm actually originally from the States and worked for a, a University of Waterloo spinoff called Certicom. So very early days of security entered the tech sector. And, and what I found about that market, similar to mobile, which I entered later, is that as horizontal platforms are very dependent on ecosystems to drive the markets and drive growth. I had a number of successive roles in there, starting with marketing, moved into product management. I managed a team that brought the first mobile VPN product to market, helped take them public in Canada, helped move them to the US, move them to Europe, and, and then eventually left there to move into Symbian and the mobile world. But a lot of my roles as I grew into the company was on partnerships, strategic business development, ecosystems. And then I just carried that forward. So at Symbian, I worked with network operators very challenging sector to work with when you're trying to get new technologies adopted. And they were the first open operating system back in the early days of smartphone growth and wars. Talk about an ecosystem. It's a consortium of large companies that didn't want Microsoft to win the market, basically. So we had Motorola and Siemens and Samsung and Nokia, which ended up being the big gorilla and, and Fujitsu. 
really defining the platform and the rules for how they would engage and interoperate on this to drive value for everybody. And then the network operators, of course, were key because they were the customers for the phone. They eventually were purchased by Nokia, spun off the, the OS into open source. So I got to learn about open source by running the US arm of the Open Source Foundation. Moved from that back into security as SaaS and cloud was emerging, working with the CEO for a, a traditional enterprise security company that wanted to digitally transform, move into the SaaS market. How do we do that? Turned out to be very challenging because it's a really hard shift in mindset to go from enterprise to subscription SaaS revenues in the cloud, especially when enterprise salespeople like selling big perpetual deals. I learned a lot from that. Then I found my way into Telefonica Digital. Telefonica is one of the world's largest network operators. Uh, working for them in Silicon Valley to do big blank sheet of paper deals to help this telco add more value into its product suites. I had been doing some angel investing in private stocks, working with startups. Decided I wanted to go back to it full-time because principles 101 with investing, diversification. Angel investing is a really good way to stub your toe unless you dedicate time to it and diversify. I was fortunately in a position where I could build a family office, build out the private equity side of that and put together a portfolio of primarily seed stage investments, about a third of which were in Canada, being able to leverage my connections there. And I met my partners in Mighty Capital through co-investing with them. We decided to raise a fund to take advantage of a group called Products Account. So Products Account is really a sister company of Mighty Capital. It's an association of some 300,000 product managers, and we touch about 20% of product people worldwide. My partner, Essie Mawadi, founded that as a product expert herself back in the day when she wanted to go learn best practices from other product managers. It's a really tough position inside companies. It's not taught in school. It's taught on the job, and you, you tend to sit between sales and engineering and you have lots of accountability and often low control of resources. So the preposition we had was, how can we leverage this network for investing to really capitalize on the growth of the product movement? Um, that was in 2017. So I've been very much focused on Mighty Capital since then. We've had three IPOs out of our first fund, deploying our second fund and getting ready to raise our third fund. And since 2017, we've only seen this thesis of we're living in the age of product. The best products are winning. It's only accelerated largely because of the pandemic, which really was fuel on the fire there. You know, one thing that does strike me about your firm is the composition of your team. You know, it's not that usual that you have 100% female general partners and a very diverse group of venture partners behind you, both gender, age, you know, ethnicity, it's all there. Yeah, that's a great question. I, when I get asked, isn't it hard to be a woman in venture capital? Um, honestly, I, I laugh a little bit because my reply is I used to be a woman in cybersecurity. <laughs> and that industry really hasn't changed that much. You do have some really significant female figures now in cyber, but it's pretty heavy male. And I just was used to working that way since I was young anyways. But venture feels much more diverse than cyber. So. <laughs> SC and I are two female GPs going into fun three. We've been diverse from the outset. And it's grown into a really diverse portfolio. Our CEOs, if you look at them from Fund One, we're really proud of how diverse they are. What's interesting, though, it's we didn't set out by design to do that. We just live the diversity. We're not an impact fund. Our number one criteria is to maximize investments. 
but just by being diverse and growing our venture partners and attracting people from different segments, we certainly are. And we often forget that we stick out that way with two female GPs because we're just living our lives and doing our jobs. We have a great team though. You mentioned our venture partners, all of whom are limited partners who have come on board to invest significant amounts of time to help build the board bench, help screen companies, help work through due diligence. And they all have significant operational experience and expertise that they can lend to the portfolio companies. And it helps us scale up. One of the most exciting parts of Mighty Capital is our diverse team, diverse across all kinds of ranges, however you want to measure diversity. And I do think it has resulted in better investments and better returns and really exciting portfolio companies. I I think it's fascinating to see a fund being so product-led and looking for product-led growth, furthering product-led growth, creating an ecosystem of, as you say, these people that don't go to university to study this, they have to learn this on the job. It seems like you're one of the linchpins in this whole product-led ecosystem. I think you're ideal to answer some of these questions that we also grapple with, which for our clients, what does it really take to be product first? Why is that so important? And, and how does a company get there? Exactly. And what do we mean by product-led growth? It's really an approach in which user acquisition, expansion, conversion, and retention are driven primarily by the product, which is different from how we tended to think of it as marketing and sales really driving everything. But the the, the role of product in doing that cost-effectively is a way to unlock business value and, and really have strength in the market and competitive advantage. It's really what we mean by product-led growth. And for... Some of our listeners, particularly those perhaps in the OEM world that are thinking about this, but in another mode, right? They're working through distributors, they're working through complex supply chains, and their connection to the customer might not be as close as it would be with, say, a SaaS company. What advice do you have for people generally out there trying to determine what the customer wants? Yeah. And there are a lot of hurdles to making these changes. We identified some, you know, the rate of change at there's a hurdle. How do you pick a point in time to fix a strategy? So agility is super key. Also short-term versus long-term, which is always the bane of especially U.S. public companies. Against that, it's an investment in the short-term to make some long-term changes. There's also human resistance to change. What does it take? I think certainly I've always, you know, even when I was a telephonic guy, the chief digital officer has to be the CEO typically, to start culture change, a growth mindset. It's also really important to align incentives. One mistake I've seen inside companies is you have this group over here that's now all about the future and going digital, like we'll do SaaS, we'll work on the SaaS. And then you've got 90% of the company doing their day-to-day and they can sometimes feel threatened or have objectives at odds where the incentives are not aligned. So making sure everybody gets to participate in some way, shape, or form, allowing for trial and error. And then when you talk about like your distributors, to what extent can you work with your ecosystem to learn more about your customer to inform your products? It's not just order taking, but they're part of the ears and eyes on the ground for what the customers are actually looking for. And unless you include that in your conversation with your channels, you may not get the data back that you need until it's too late. In essence, what you're describing there is almost a playbook for digital transformation that a lot of people struggle with. Exactly. And now people are paying consultants a lot of money to figure this out, which is one good way to go to to work on the change model. So who could you pick out for everybody to look at? Who's doing a really good job of this? 
Yeah, let me use kind of a, an old one I lived through that everybody understands, first of all, and then I'll talk about some portfolio companies. So about a year and a half after the iPhone was launched, the CEO of Nokia, Stephen Elop, had an internal memo that got leaked. He said something in this memo, I, I guess it was meant to motivate employees, like, we are standing on a burning platform. It has become a war of ecosystems. And Nokia was very good at focusing on, you know, that best phone product. They made excellent products and they were the market share leader by far. The Nokia ringtone was one of the most recognizable sounds in the world. But as we moved into these smartphone systems, which Nokia helped create, they primed the pub. There was really a foundation there to add value into the product or user experience around content, right? And Apple wisely kept it under their own umbrella. And so it's a lot of value for Apple being able to bring in a lot of content from third parties, have a method to pay them for it, smooth user experience. It became very much an example of how the ecosystem and being focused on the product in a very comprehensive way overturned a market. Maybe this is a good segue. One of our companies is Canela Media and they launched uh, a service initially, Canela TV. So over the top streaming media, you think, why do we need another one of these? They focused on Spanish speakers, Spanish listeners, and watchers in the U.S., so U.S. Latinx markets. Before they launched, though, they went worldwide to source the best content, so not just Mexico, which a lot of similar services had done, but all across the Spanish-speaking world. They built a significant you know, library of content before they even launched, and then they were able to sew up advertisers that wanted to specifically target this demographic. And then as they've rapidly grown, they've been able to add more product offerings, expand it to their market, including kids' content, music. They're going to expand geographically. So I think it's a good example where you don't have to be a Netflix-sized company to find an area and experience huge growth and extract business value. Maybe another good company which speaks directly to product managers is Amplitude. They were actually our first investment and they made real for Mighty Capital in their Series C because of the products account ecosystem, which helped boost their sales significantly. Spencer Skates, the CEO, says we were their best value per dollar invested. They're now a public company. They actually have a very focused platform selling to product managers to help them extract data about their products to build better products. For example, helping customers building digital products, reduce churn, increase conversion rates, really product optimization. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And, you know, when I look back over your career, I think there's one dominant theme and that's building partnerships. You built them in some very difficult areas, the mobile networks, and helped to create some very effective platforms with products still being front and center. With that perspective, why are ecosystems so important for innovators? Yeah, exactly. And here's an important message. Every company has an ecosystem. The question is, do you have an ecosystem strategy? Because <laughs> it will grow and change and evolve, and it will be a mix of organic and strategic activities. So. The extent that you can get a hold of it early and point it in the right direction and decide which elements you want to grow strategically, which are okay to grow organically, you can really leverage it. We say the best product wins in the market. I think the best product with the best ecosystems win bigger and faster. It's important for helping a company grow quickly and along the right lines. And it's how do you build it and use it? And you know what are the goals? If, if you're not taking a strategic approach to it, it's growing anyways, and you can end up with a, a big circus in terms of commitments made across the organization to different kinds of partnerships or lots of partnerships with no real KPIs and metrics and no care and feeding. So it's a big waste of time and money. I tend to think of 
partnerships on the spectrum from those that are low resource, easy to do, kind of cookie cutter. So, you know, maybe simple product integrations, for example, to other products to add value. So for example, if you have an app that works really well on Chrome, do you integrate and extend to the other browsers or participating in cookie cutter partner programs like Salesforce's App Exchange, AWS, and so on and so forth. It's just the easy end of the spectrum. And you kind of have channels in the middle, different ways to distribute your product. And those have gotten more complex, or it's not just a simple channel agreement. Maybe it's referral sales. Maybe it's OEM and white label. You know, maybe there's extra collaboration and not just a distributor in a partnership. And then on the extreme end of this, the spectrum, you have those complex deals where everybody has to contribute a lot of time, money, resources for joint development, OEM deals, M&A, joint ventures. And those are things that really help your company step up to the next level. You know, we think of ecosystems in terms of what's in your core company. So your employees, your advisors, your board of directors. I feel like you know, even within that set of people, they're direct connections. We see that in the startup world, certainly, and in Silicon Valley. Is your spouse a lawyer at Fenwick? Or do they work at Google? And are there ways in to build your ecosystem through just who's immediately in your core company. And of course, your suppliers, lawyers, accountants, and so forth. And then you extend that ecosystem beyond that with partnerships. And it's usually pretty easy to see which ones fit around that core quickly. We're seeing a lot of creativity extend further out where ecosystems are built where the connections are super intuitive, but there's a lot of creativity in collaborations in this digital world, especially, or McDonald's having hamburgers named after Instagram influencers, for example. <laughs> I'd love to dive into that a little bit deeper because I think it's interesting that you put these on a spectrum from, yeah. say, easy to execute to much more difficult. And you said, okay, on the on the kind of easier end of it, this cookie cutter approach, you have your, your integrations and you have your distribution deals and, and channel partnerships. And then on the, on the far end of it, you've got these complex M&A joint venture deals that have a lot to do with, say, the corporate development department, for example. I want to dive into that gap in between, though. And you said something very interesting when you were describing your background. I think it was at Telefonica that you said you put together a lot of white paper deals. It's those that I want to talk about a little bit because I think a lot of our audience is probably in that kind of weird space where mm -hmm. they, they don't really want it. They've got their channel partnerships. They have their distribution agreements. They're not really trying to do an M&A agreement. It's, it's about how to execute or put in place a growth strategy that has not really been invented yet, at least not in their industry. And I think you did that. Could you talk a little bit about those white paper deals? Yeah, I can give you a couple examples, definitely. One we did that I managed was with Evernote, the note-taking application back when it was super popular. I think it still is. We just don't hear as much about them, but I'm a loyal user, I have to know. So, Me too. Well, that, yeah, Evernote, they were really trying to grow their user base. And Telefonica was looking for things they could give their customers that would delight them to really keep the customer, reduce churn, you know, move their friends and family over. So we, we did an agreement in which we helped distribute the Evernote application across about 20 countries. It didn't apply to every country in the Telefonica network, but most of them, UK, Brazil, across Latin America, Central America, where if you signed up, if you're a Telefonica user, you could redeem, you know, codes to get the Evernote premium paid for app for free for a year, but instantly launched in every single country. And what was fun about it is the country managers, the product people in each territory loved having something to give 
to their customers. So they got involved in building the websites and working on the redemption and working on the social media campaigns. And that's very hard to do in, in the network operator because they have so many messages they're sending to their users and we all get bombarded and they don't really like sending messages about third-party products and, and so forth. But here was something where it wasn't a conflict. We didn't have conflict between each other. It was really amazing as it got launched to see, especially on social, to then see customers say, hey, I just got this Evernote premium for free from O2, which is one of the telephonic operating businesses. From O2, I can't believe they gave me this. This is awesome. Like getting the feedback that it was definitely valuable. Evernote added, you know, millions of users into its space. So I've oversimplified it a little bit, but it was like, what can we jointly put together? And there was a bit of work on integration and redemption and how do we make this technical stuff work? Try to make it as easy as possible and to get the marketing teams together. But that made the Telefonica product so much more than just your connection to the network. It's extra value add for being a customer. Great example. Great example. And I think about that and I think about some of the more equipment manufacturers or hardware people that are trying to do something similar, they're often trying to deliver something that traditionally has been a product and now try to servitize it. I know it's a sort of awkward word, but deliver equipment as a service or a product as a service. And that, I think, is causing them to look at some of these more creative types of cooperations, creative types of deals with perhaps some smaller technology providers that can be integrated. But as you say, there's probably a lot of cultural and organizational challenges to overcome there. What are some of the ways that you've been able to overcome some of those softer challenges, if you will? Yeah, that is the challenging part, especially when this little group called business development is putting stuff together that requires somebody who doesn't have that in their KPIs and bonusable objectives to do something for you to get it deployed. My parents never understood what I did. How do you even explain it to people you work with sometimes? But it's very challenging because the expectations are high that you'll do something to move the needle, but you have to sell everybody around you to actually execute and implement. And that is where a lot of partnerships fall down, to be honest. You have to rely on other people to do it. And if they're not bought into it, they're going to fight you along the way. Um, so it definitely takes some softer skills to build relationships, build bridges. Um, I mentioned that mobile VPN product that I built for Certicom. I had to really build bridges with our CTO, who back then didn't believe anybody would have the internet on their phone, on their devices, right? And... Yeah, how do I make him feel like it's part of his idea? Well, he solic starts soliciting the feedback in his case, like, you know, how would we, how would it work if, and help me whiteboard this, so he starts getting bought into it. I think people also get excited by creative destruction, so to speak, and disruption. And fortunately, we are getting more and more conditioned to that, finding really cool new things to do. People want to be part of what's cool. So how can you involve them in a way that doesn't detract from them meeting their own objectives? Ideally, you got to align incentives so everybody has an, an incentive to participate in this. And there are different ways, you know, to structure that. Like you should spend 5% of your time on edge of the envelope activities, for example. And you end up building a team of people that will help you achieve what you want to do when you're doing one of these partnerships cross-functionally. If you don't do that, it definitely gets blocked and it doesn't go to market or it doesn't reach its um, objectives. I think if I can describe it, there's sort of two ways. One is that you have to be a very good bridge builder. And yeah. number two, align incentives. So if you can find KPIs that you know help them to achieve their objectives and still the objective of the partnership, 
then everybody's alive. Exactly. Some people will naturally gravitate towards wanting to be involved. For example, when I had to work with product management teams, if it meant they got to go work with somebody at one of the big five tech companies and increase their own network by getting involved in these projects, they'd be more likely to get involved and get interested. And sometimes the challenge can be setting boundaries there and making sure you're still in control of the overall relationship with the partner. I think it's interesting the way you talk about it. You talk a lot about human motivation as a way to align interests, finding out what that is, what gets a team or an individual excited about something and trying to leverage that in some way for the greater good. That's something that I think deserves a whole podcast of its own almost to to dive into that a little bit more. Here's some maybe practical advice. The functions I always found the most difficult to get on board, but huge reliance on could be the IT departments. where I need this website and security issues. The IT departments don't like to change, alter, do something unique and special. That could often be the last mile. So how do you get them on board? It's often a big challenge. Yeah, I think success in that area is uh, is a huge badge of achievements. Let's shift gear somewhat to another theme, which is this theme of changing and emerging roles. I Mm. think there's a few roles that as we look out what's going on in technology and and particularly on the product side of things, how particular roles are evolving very rapidly. There's one that's a little bit more general, and that is the CEO is becoming the chief digital officer for many companies going through a digital transformation. Is that something that you're seeing across your portfolio? Yes, definitely. Now, our portfolio is mostly tech companies, so they are very product-first, very digitally-minded. But I'd say, by and large, yes, the, the CEO is more and more becoming the chief digital officer. And concurrent with that, we're seeing the rise of the chief product officer. Actually, I have some statistics on that. Products account has been doing some research on this. And about 15% of Fortune 5000 today have a chief product officer. You compare this to the chief marketing officer, which really ascended over the last 15, 20 years. Marketing has gone into the C-suite as being part of the strategic team. Now the CPO is on that same trajectory. We expect in about five years, 70% of Fortune 5000 will have a chief product officer, just like they have a chief marketing officer. In younger, smaller companies, we're seeing the CPO get hired at much earlier stages because of the product-led growth. Um, philosophies out there. And what's really key here is it's moving product from product to strategy. Like how is product informing the strategy to unlock business value both inside the company and at your customers? So how are you helping grow revenues, reduce costs, increase productivity? How does product play into that? So CPOs and product people are now getting budgets to help drive strategic implementation. And that's a shift that's happening. And it was really accelerated as well over the last couple of years when we had this massive disruption and had to get very creative about how product helps companies continue on with their business or even grow their business. And is that something that's unique to the SaaS world where the company strategy is somewhat dominated by a single product? Or do you see that developing also in companies where the product portfolio might be hundreds or thousands of, you know, to use an old term, SKUs? 
Yeah, exactly. You know, product management, we, we tend to think of that as being associated with consumer packaged goods, right? Finish your MBA, go be a product manager, Procter & Gamble. It now pl- applies very significantly into the tech sector. And almost every company now has to be a tech company, a data company, because tech is a huge part of how you sell and distribute even SKU product. It took a while, but the internet you know, is, is overtaking so many other distribution channels, for example. So I think that it definitely is not just SaaS. And I think it even includes traditional lines of business where you have products and you need to expand that product suite. And what does it mean for the product? It's not just the product. It's how are you pricing it, distributing it, selling it, promoting it on digital channels. And that really leads into the the next role that I want to talk about, which is customer success, because that's a big part of that whole, you know, experience life cycle, customer life cycle, if you will. Is that something also that you're seeing as a an evolving role? Definitely. It's one of the, the biggest areas for growth for employment is customer success. And I think we see it a lot in technology because it can be complicated to put something new into a large company and you want to keep that customer. So revenue retention is super key. So are expanding revenues within the account. And you can really only do that by having eyes and ears on the ground with the customer. Customer success is a great way to get data and have a feedback loop to the product teams, for example, about opportunities or which features don't we need? Where is the customer stumbling to actually implement and deploy? And it can be the simplest things, often user experience. Um, how is this integrating into internal systems? So, so, for example, in the healthcare industry, does this need to be integrated into the medical record systems? Usually, yes. <laughs> If you don't have that, it can be really difficult to get widespread deployment. So customer success, along with CPOs, seems to be two of the biggest growth areas to unlock value and retain customers. What about another area that I think you've also had a lot of personal experience and also a role that to us is very important because that's the primary persona that we serve in our work, and that is uh, corporate or, or business development, but also specifically within a startup or, or younger company. How is it evolving? Where is that in its life cycle, if you will? It depends so much on the founding teams and their makeup, right? So personally, I love founding teams that have one product, technology, strong person, and one externally facing strong person that understands sales and ecosystem development. And if they're repeat founders, that's the magic formula. (laughs) In my mind as an investor, I love that formula. But I'm seeing business development take on the function much earlier than it used to. These can be expensive roles with long-term benefits. So they can be harder to justify when you're trying to be super cost-efficient with your capital. But often, if one of those founders is externally facing, they're more likely to start building those partnerships and ecosystems earlier. We've got one portfolio company that comes to mind that's been very good about doing this. Their name's CERN. They have a no-code, low-code AI platform for financial services. And low-code and no-code is one of the big tech revolutions we're seeing now, which really help to reduce costs and make citizen developers out of normal average line of business people that want to tap into the value of their data. But a CERN very early on started building partnerships with technology, data, cloud, and consulting firms to accelerate their business. So working with companies like Snowflake, Morningstar, Capgemini. And by doing that, they're increasing the value to their customers, but also the speed of going to market. Working with a Capgemini makes it easier to work with a large financial institution, for example. But all these technical integrations just add more and more value to their product, which helps with not just that initial sale. I mean, usually there's a a use case that somebody wants to try out 
right away, for example, to, you know, to help make investment decisions in a, in a portfolio. By adding some of these data and technology partnerships, once they're in the account, they can show other things with that customer success team usually, but other things that can be done with the platform as they really teach them how to use it to its, its biggest benefit. So from low code, no code, which I, you know, something also Christy and I know a little bit about. We work together at a, a company delivering that kind of technology. Very exciting development. And now we're seeing the next iteration of the entire web stack. Some people are calling it web three. We know it's connected to the metaverse. It's connected to blockchain. Is these areas that you're examining or have made investments in? And, and if so, how do you view this next big thing? Yeah, sure. Our investment thesis is about 70% B2B tech, which is a very broad area, but we have about 30% we carve out for areas specifically for health AI and fintech and blockchain. So it's still really B2B tech, but focusing on a, a segment that has its own characteristics. These three are really big growth pillars in our minds for the future in terms of growth and direction. When we look at blockchain, we made a, a blockchain investment in a company called Icon. It was a, our earliest investment because blockchain companies are still pretty early on, on the curve. Their mission is really to make blockchain easier for businesses to integrate. One of the reasons we invested was to learn about the sector, to be honest. It's been great from that perspective. And the company, we've pegged them as one of our potential fund returners. For Fund One, they have great potential. What they do specifically is they help businesses build blockchain into their environment. They, they specifically are focused on identity and wallet platforms at this point in time and connecting to multiple chains. So that it's almost like serving traditional businesses with a blockchain platform. We expect it to be a longer time to fruition, to exit, because the sector is early. But, you know, who knows? This is definitely an area that's growing quickly with significant investment going into it. I would say it's early in the cycle still for the growth of the market, but it's hard not to invest in blockchain when you want to look at the areas that are going to grow in the next 10 to 20 years and provide significant upside opportunities. So the last few years, I think everybody would agree, have been a little bit strange. We've gone through more than two years of pandemic. Now we've got global supply chain woes, breakage of many of the things that have kept supply chains afloat over the last decades. And now we're in a basically uh, full-blown war in Europe. How are your portfolio companies dealing with this? What provisional plans have they made? How is this impacting their business? And how has this changed your approach to investment? There's no doubt the last couple of years we've had higher than average uncertainty in the markets. And it looks like with what's going on in Europe and Ukraine, we're, we're going to continue to live in times of high uncertainty. How has it affected us? Well, we stick to fundamentals when it comes to investing. So when we look at a company, when we look at a sector, it's very hard to time markets, public markets, private markets. You want to stick to some basics. We have a lot of discipline around evaluating a team, evaluating a, a company's opportunity in terms of what solution, what problem are they solving with their solution? And is this a large and growing market? For example, blockchain, we were just talking about that. Yes, we expect it will be a large market with a huge growth rate. Are the terms of the investment fair and reasonable in a way that allows us to connect it to an exit that meets the expectations of our investors, right? But I like to start at the end and work backward and think about the scenarios about how we return money to our investors at a, a really healthy rate. So those fundamentals stick. And everything we look at through uncertainty and, and whatnot. Within our portfolio companies, there's only a couple that seem to be affected directly by the supply chain issues. One has managed it by opening manufacturing 
outside of China where they were initially doing all their manufacturing. The other one, they've had to buy up some components uh, in the market to make sure they're stockpiled. It hasn't been a significant disruption. I, I would say in general, the thing about uncertainty is that I, I used the word creative destruction earlier. It opens up a lot of opportunities for companies to be very innovative in how they address that uncertainty to help themselves and their customers grow their revenues, manage costs, and increase productivity when things are challenging. And we definitely saw that during the pandemic. As I mentioned earlier, that helped add fuel to this fire of product-led growth and being very product-focused to solve immediate needs. We're still very bullish on the opportunities investing in private companies has for long-run returns. You know, our investors aren't in it to turn a profit in six months. They're they're usually in it because they want to be in the markets that represent significant capital appreciation opportunities in the long run, and we still really have to go private for that. It scares some people, of course, but those that survive have that you know growth mindset, to be quite honest. Like, how do I work within this to do better? How is this an opportunity, right? And how can I, as well, alleviate challenges and, and pain points? as costs rise, as productivity gets challenging with workforce issues and so forth. Now, what things excite us? There are a lot of big emerging technology trends right now. I think convergence, which we've been seeing grow for a while, and now it's like convergence on steroids <laughs> between networks and the cloud and platforms and IoT and devices and artificial intelligence and blockchain. So Really, this, this use of technology in convergence to increase productivity when everyone was disrupted and the workforce issues, that, I think that really comes into play where we have this convergence disruption and opportunities as well. Just a lot of space in there for companies to provide solutions. Web3 and blockchain, really exciting areas. You know, is it hype or is it the next evolution of the web? I think there's too much investment, too much energy going in this to say it's just hype. It's definitely a long time coming. We're still early in the cycle, use cases starting to emerge, but the groundwork is being laid there with a lot of expertise. I think young professionals who get any kind of work experience in blockchain are set for life. <laughs> That's a really good area to focus on. You know, other technology trends. I love AI and healthcare. I think I mentioned that already. On a personal level, it's always easy to get emotionally attached to your healthcare investments when you see just some of the amazing um, innovation that goes on there to make people's lives better. One of our companies, Fabric Genomics, they do rapid sequencing, whole genome sequencing to find variants for things like rare diseases. And they've helped save kids' lives in pediatric wards by, by identifying rare pediatric diseases in a fraction of the time that it used to take using their AI platform. And of course, distributed and edge computing and all the opportunities that opens up for better computing technologies more and more data to be processed and leveraged and the flywheel that creates to improve entire systems. There's just so much going on, it's actually hard to narrow down where to put your investments sometimes. Fantastic. Yeah, and you got two new fans of Mighty Capital. I think you guys have just built something great here. So thank you so much for this time. Don't forget to check out harborresearch.com for more insights on smart systems. This podcast was edited and produced by Christy Zoak and moderated by Owen Jennings. Harbor Research is a growth strategy consulting and venture development firm with over 30 years of experience working with leading manufacturers, service providers, and technology developers to discover, design, and develop smart systems and Internet of Things growth opportunities. Visit harborresearch.com to learn more or follow us wherever you get your podcasts.